should say, with all the sort of superheroes. I did wonder for a while if, um, if T-Man, uh, as mentioned there, sounds quite like He-Man. Uh, it was one of my favourite ones, except for a you know, bit more interesting. Maybe drinks more tea. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> so, if you were going to write a book, you maybe cut that out of the <laughs> If you were going to write a book for unbelievers, what would you include? There are many good examples uh, on the bookstore in the foyer. Uh, in the New Testament, there's one book specifically addressed to non-believers, uh, John's Gospel. So John 20, uh, 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So it's written to convince people of the truth of Jesus In the Old Testament, there's one book written to unbelievers as well. It's the book of Obadiah. All the other books are addressed to Israel and Judah uh, primarily, but Obadiah was written for Edom, the kingdom uh, uh, south of Judah, uh, sort of existing just a bit below. In that kingdom were the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother in Genesis, which is why it keeps going between Edom and Esau as you go through. And they had been a thorn in the side of Israel right from when they left Egypt in Exodus. They would not allow them safe passage through their country, so the Israelites had to take uh, a long way round. By the time we get to uh, Obadiah, Israel had been carried off by the Assyrians, the northern kingdom, and Judah had been carried off by the Babylonians. But Edom, at this point, remained. So although we know very little about Obadiah the author, we can date the book quite easily. It was written sometime after 586 BC when Jerusalem was destroyed, but before 553 BC when Babylon uh, came for Edom. So there's a sort of 30 year window that we know this was written in. And the message God gives Edom is stark, as you read through this. Basically it's the idea, well you think you're better than everybody else. You think you can mistreat God's people with impunity, And you think judgment isn't coming, but the day is coming, says God, and you'll be utterly destroyed. So firstly, or not, uh, pride comes before a fall. Pride comes before a fall, that's in verses 1 to 9. Edom see themselves there as like a fortress in the rocks, uh, an eagle in the air, impenetrable, impervious. Edom was a, a hilly land built around Mount Seir. Again, that gets that name sometimes. And they believed that that meant they were above everybody else, quite literally. Tucked away, safe among the stars, proud and arrogant in their aloofness. Who will bring me down? They ask. But the answer is that God will bring them down. God is coming for them. God is going to take them from their heights and bring them low. And you get the the imagery there that nothing will be left. There'll be nothing like a thief coming in the night won't leave anything of value. Like grape gatherers don't leave anything uh, or any big groups of grapes. Everything will be gone. Because their eyes have deceived them. The people that they trusted in to help them will abandon them. But Edom at this point are oblivious. They've no idea this is what's going to happen. They have no understanding. And the day is approaching when God will make a reckoning. They'll be attacked and cut off entirely. 
Now, historically, this happened as the Babylonians came for them uh, in 553 BC. Never again would Eden really constitute a nation. Their remnant would not return to their land, but would dwell in the south of what had formerly been Judah. An Arabian tribe known as the Nabataeans took over what had been Edom, and they never really left. Obadiah, like the other prophets, gives us a stark picture of God's wrath and judgment. And it's really clear that it's not just karma. It's not just the universe settling scores. God is coming for them. He's actively against them. There really is going to be an awful end in store for them. And that end serves as a miniature picture of the judgment that is to come. A mini day of the Lord, as it keeps referring to it throughout the passage, that shows us the rough outline of the great day of the Lord that is to come. Fascinating that this warning of judgment here appears here in a book written for unbelievers. When so many now actually are keen that we leave that out of our message for people who are outside the church. Yet isn't this precisely what we need to include? The warning of what's coming? Isn't this what people want or need to know? Even if they don't want to know? Wouldn't you want to know them if you were in mortal danger? Why were they in danger though? Well secondly, the treachery of Edom from verses 10 to 15. This was happening because they had treated their brother Israel miserably. Awfully. In this case, it was through the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom. They treated them awfully. It would seem that the Edomites took advantage of Judah's fall. Instead of coming to Israel's defence against the Babylonians, they joined in with the plundering, no doubt taking whatever the Babylonians had left. It says also that they handed over the fugitives for the Babylonians to take. As though the people who tried to escape from Judah, they found them and they handed them over. And they gloated over the downfall of their brother. They were happy about it, as though they wouldn't share the same fate. They rejoiced over the downfall of their brother and they sort of piled on with everybody else taking the plunder from the, from the nation. Could you imagine that? I suppose the closest we'd get to it it would be a bit like if England was invaded and the Scots and the Welsh, I can say this because Richard's not here, the Welsh just stood by and watched it happen. In fact, not even that, they got in and encouraged the invaders to come and take the land. And then pouring into the country once the invaders had gone, plundering the cities for what was left. I mean, we joke about rivalry within the UK, don't we? But if if that actually happened, that would be taken rightly as a total betrayal, wouldn't it? Between what should be really kindred nations. A backstabbing of the worst kind. That would be the sort of idea of what we've got here. And yet before we point the finger in judgment too much, there is the temptation to act that way sometimes on a lower level, isn't there? On a lower scale for ourselves. We've seen the fall over the past few years of a number of celebrity pastors and evangelists, big megachurches and networks. And it's tempting, isn't it, to join in with the pylon, to criticise and be, well, I told you so. But whereas Edom should have been learning from Judas fall, instead they were queuing up to take pot shots, along with the very people who would soon turn around and devour them. We need to be wary, as Christians, of the pride that Edom had, and the sheer obliviousness to their own precarious position. 
When churches fall, even when we know why and what it was all along, supposedly, we should be careful of of presumption and pride. Edom thought that they were impervious to Babylon. They never dreamed that they would be the next up for the Babylonians to take. So it's worth us thinking, do we think that Beach Hill Church couldn't fall apart like Mars Hill Church did in Seattle? Did you think that as your pastor I'm immune from falling into the same sins as people like Ravi Zacharias or Steve Timmets or Carl Lentz, to name but three recent ones? If you haven't heard those stories, it doesn't really matter in one sense. Because what it is really is a warning. And I'll warn you now that I'm not immune. I have a heart within dwelling sin, just like them. If you think I'm too nice to fall into that stuff, well, that's very kind, but you're wrong. There, but by the grace of God, go I. And it means that you guys need to pray for me. We all need to be praying for each other, don't we? Pride says that I don't need others. Pride says that I don't need help. That I'm safe. But the gospel says we need God. We need Jesus and we need each other. All of us need God's strength, don't we? To resist temptation. We should be praying for them for that help. The point is though, when we see these kinds of falls happen, we don't gloat. We don't snipe. We take heed. And we weep. And we pray. Even when they're not quite on the same theological page as us, that doesn't matter so much. We need to learn from it and pray about it, rather than just piling on with everybody else. Again, though, isn't it interesting that highlighting their sin, the way they betrayed their brother, formed part of the message for the nation outside of Israel. They were told why the judgment was coming. They were presented with their sin. And again, sin is one of those things that people want us to leave out of the message. Sort of unpalatable for the world around us. But here it is. And it needs to be. Edom had sinned against their brother by rejoicing over his fall. Even though they were quite different as nations, Judah still was their brother. And just as happened to Judah, so will happen to them. As it happened to Judah, well, that's what's the future for Edom, with one major difference. And we see that in our last point, the fate of the nations. That's in verses 16 to 21. The New Living Translation puts uh, verse 16 like this. Just as you swallowed up my people on my holy mountain, so you and the surrounding nations will swallow the punishment I pour out on you. Yes, all the nations will drink and stagger and disappear from history. That's really getting across the strength of the idea of the swallowing down. But it doesn't say surrounding nations, does it, in those verses? It says all the nations. All nations must swallow the cup of God's wrath. All nations must face his judgment. And they will become as though they never existed, is what he's saying here. So utter will be the destruction on the day of the Lord, the day of God's wrath. You see, these verses begin to take us way beyond Edom, way beyond the Middle East. What it promises here is judgment day. What will happen to Edom will be but a picture of what is to come for all the nations, to the whole world. Even if we don't take Edom as a type, as a shadow of the judgment to come, judgment for all the nations is promised here in the passage, isn't it? 
the day of the Lord. But we're also told that there's a place of safety. You see that in verse 17? But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. On that day of God's wrath there will be a safe place, and it's the place where the anger of God's fiery judgment has already burned. Mount Zion. Whereas Edom will be no more, the Lord's people will remain, and they will be holy. They'll be set apart and they'll consume Esau. Now this is looking forward, not just to the return of Judah to the land, but to the Mount Zion that we read about in scripture. The promised place, the promised land. And for us as believers, as New Testament believers, there is a safe place too, in the midst of God's judgment. And it's again where the anger of God's fiery judgment has already burned. The Lord Jesus Christ. If we are in Christ, then we are safe from God's judgment. The fire of God's wrath has already burned against him. He is the one place where safety is found. And of course, as we come to him, we come to Mount Zion, to the great gathering of all God's people, to the assembly of the firstborn, as he puts it in Hebrews 12. All else will be consumed. Only Christ and his people will be there on that final day, possessing the, the earth. As it says isn't it, in Matthew's Gospel, the meek shall inherit the earth. And that's really what it's showing us with those final verses. The land is occupied, we're told. Uh, we're told that it's those by the Negev who will possess it. That's an area of Judah. Another area of Judah will possess the land of the Philistines, as well as possessing Ephraim and Samaria. Benjamin, who were another tribe in Judah, uh, were told that they'll possess Gilead. Gilead was originally possessed by Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh. The exiles will possess the land right from Zarephath, so far north that it's in modern-day Lebanon, uh, to the cities of the Negev in the south, which runs right down to the Red Sea. What was the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, will take up the whole of Israel and Eden, and Philistia. They'll fill the land that was formerly theirs, plus the northern kingdom, plus the land of their enemies. Again, pointing us to God's people possessing the whole earth in the future, not just their own land, but the land of their enemies. And do you notice that in verse 21, it will be ruled by saviours. Saviours shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdoms shall be the Lord's. It's not quite as obscure as the translation makes it sound. If you put it in the language of the rest of the Bible, it says literally, they will be judged by judges. And the kingship will be the Lord's. It's not really the word kingdom, it's, it's more the idea of God's rule in a place. So God will be the winner. God will be the one ruling over all. One of the things about Obadiah is you don't get the sort of promise about David that you often get in the other prophets. But that's partly because it's addressed to the nations, isn't it? But God will rule, it says. God's kingdom will rule, even over Edom, even over Israel's former enemies. God will be king over all. Now, according to the historian Josephus, the survivors of Edom were forcibly added to the nation of Judah. 
They come to live in the territory, sort of just a bit south, a bit north of where they were before, and were sort of in Judah's land, and they were forced into the nation. And their line was lost. So the last Edomite we read about in the Bible is King Herod and his family. They were Edomites. And the last Herod we hear of is in Acts 12. I'll read it to you, Acts 12, 21 onwards. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Eden, arrogant to the end, but then ended. But the gospel increased and multiplied. And no doubt many people who are descended from Esau have put their trust in the Lord Jesus down through the years. If you want to know more about what became of the physical land of Edom, have a chat with Vernon afterwards, because most of it now is in the land of Jordan. But the kingship belongs to the Lord. He is seeing his gospel go out over all the world, to all nations. His deliverance, his salvation is spreading everywhere, just as he promised, to all those who run to Mount Zion for refuge, for all who put their trust in the Lord Jesus. And really, what better message can we give to those outside than the wonderful news of the gospel? They need to hear about judgment, yes. They need to hear about sin, yes. But they also need to hear about the one who took that judgment, the one who paid for our sin. They need to hear the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Saviour of the world. Well, let's pray that God would help us heed the lessons of the book of Obadiah. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that your judgment fell on the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you that he is that safe place that we can run to for refuge. Father, thank you that we can be part of his kingdom, whatever our background, whatever our ethnicity. Father, thank you for people all across the world who have put their trust in the Lord Jesus. But Father, we do want to pray for those who are still on the outside. Father, we pray that they would come to a real understanding of their situation before you, the judgment that is to come, their sin before you. And Father, help us to bring that good news of the Lord Jesus, that they might join us on that final day, rejoicing around your throne. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.